0: So I'm curious, raise your hand if you like change. So I see a a few hands, like a sometimes, but a lot of people don't like change. For me, most of the time I do, like I like things changing up, except for like when Facebook decides to change how I can post things on the church page and then I get really frustrated because I don't know how to do it. Um, And then I have to relearn it. Like that's probably when I'm the lead or... Like when your phone doesn't update and now you don't know where anything is? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody have that same experience? Yeah? Okay, that's probably when I get the most frustrated. But besides that, like change for me is pretty good. But however you feel about change in general, today as we wrap up this Easter season series, we have a lesson today that shows us that that God really has changed things for us. That there is a change that has taken place that affects us today that lasts. Into eternity. And this change is not a change to be afraid of. It's not necessarily easy. It doesn't come naturally, at least from the way we, we come into this world. But it is a change that is incredible. A change for good. The lesson we have is Romans chapter 6 verses 11 to 14. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, these last few weeks, we've been spending some time in the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Rome. All of our lessons have come from this section where God is really speaking through Paul about how he has created a new humanity. Where, as Adam brought sin into this world by trusting what his own eyes could see instead of trusting God, through Adam's sin and death broke into this world, Jesus is a new Adam who through his life and then laying down his life and dying on the cross to take on himself all the, the, the sin and the justice that our sins deserve, by dying for us and then rising again, he is the source of a whole new life and makes us new people. All the lessons have been coming from, from this section. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this and really introduced that, how Adam brought sin into the world, and sin is missing the mark of how we were designed to live, that leads to death, but Jesus through his death conquered sin and death. He now rules in order to give us life. A couple of weeks ago we talked about how we're connected with that, how we are buried with Christ through baptism into death that sets us up to step forward into a new life. And this is a new life where we get to live freed from sin or literally declared right with God, justified, away from sin. We were guilty, we had our sin on us, but because Jesus took our sin, took your sin, paid for it, and rose again, you have been justified. God looks at you, he sees you right in his eyes, and he sees you separated from sin, able to live with him and live through him. Last week we talked about how because you've been Separated from sin, because you have been set right with him, now death no longer has mastery over him and no longer has mastery over us. Last week we talked about who has the final say over your life. Is it sin? Is it your guilt? Is it your shame or where you've been? Is it death itself? No. Because if death has no mastery over him, death now has no mastery over you who are in As we now have this little review of who has the final say, we're now ready to kind of step forward into our lesson today where we see this change, this change for good. And I say kind of ready to step into this lesson because, well, if you look at this screen here, you're seeing we got yellow and white. What's going on here? It's a bit of a confusing. The, The white is not today's lesson. The yellow is. And I'm starting with the white because when you look at the yellow, it says, in the same way, meaning that our lesson begins by saying our lesson is the same as what was just spoken. So if we're going to get into our lesson we need to do a quick review of what was just spoken. So what was just spoken here or just written here by Paul is that the death he dies, so the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So Jesus died to sin And then now lives to God. In that same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In order to understand what Paul says in the first verse of our lesson, we have to think about what Jesus has done. Which is something we we talked about last week. Is that when you see the the story of Jesus, the, the life, the account of Jesus, how Jesus is a story that goes from death to resurrection... When you see that Jesus died, but then rose again to new life, you see yourself in that story. When you believe in Christ, when you're baptized into Christ, you are connected with his his death, connected with his resurrection. So the cross to the empty tomb is my story. So that's foundational, again, to this lesson. Because in the same way now, our lesson says to count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Where it says count yourselves, the word in the original language is interesting. It's it's typically used for, like, taking an inventory. So when you think about yourself and think about your life, and there's so many things we go through when you think about, okay, where am I at? How am I doing? You know, who am I? Where am I going in life? When you think about yourself and take an inventory of yourself, one of the key things that you can recognize when you take this inventory is that in the same way Jesus died to defeat sin you have now died to sin. Now, if you're here for the first time today or watching online for the first time, something that I mentioned quite a bit recently, I just wanna make sure that you're clued in into it as well, is that when you think about death, death is more than just where you stop breathing. Death is the inability to be how you were created to be. To really live the way and function the way you were meant, meant to live, designed to live. Sin is what leads to death because sin is missing the mark of how you were designed to live. Sin is missing the mark of how you designed to live. Death is the inability to live how you were designed to live. That's why they go so together. Well, in this section of Romans, Paul has really been showing us how God took death and kind of flipped it on its head because now death becomes the enemy of sin. Because now you have died to sin. You, what does that mean? That if, if, if death is missing the mark of how you were designed to live well, or uh, the inability to be how you were designed to live, dying to sin means that sin is in able, incapable of having the same power and authority over you that it once had. Dying to sin means it no longer has that same grip over you that it once had. and no longer had where it could direct your life the way it did. If you've died to sin, sin does not have that power over you. So when you reckon yourself, when you take an inventory of yourself, look at yourself and see, okay, the way Jesus died to sin, I have died to sin as well. And now the way that Jesus lives now in this relationship with the Father, I have that life too. I am now living living in relationship with God. I get to live to God. A major transition has happened in my life where death no longer has this power. I've died to that. I now live, my whole life is to, from, about, in regard of God. There's been this change for good. And so our lesson, it encourages then, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. So don't let missing the mark of how you were designed to live be in charge of you. It doesn't have that same grip. Don't let it. Don't give it. Don't let it rule over you through evil desires, or more literally passionate desires, or what you crave. Now. I could very easily see and can even understand how someone might look at that and go, wait a minute, letting your desires rule over you doesn't, that that, that, that doesn't seem, that seems like a weird statement because if you're doing uh, what you desire, aren't you just doing what you want? So then aren't you ruling instead of your desires? Like I could see someone making that case, like isn't, I mean, people talk all the time, do what makes you happy, do what you want to do, right? And in many ways that seems like freedom to people. And at the same time, if you really think about how life works, we recognize that in order to really live well, you can't listen to all of your desires. And your desires can actually rule you in a bad way. Let me give you, a for instance. I have, ever since I was rather young, been a really big eater. I like food a lot. Um, and uh, so part of Part of it was because I was, so I had crazy metabolism because, so I, I was, uh, uh, some of you don't know, I was this tall by sixth grade. And I was 6'1 was six by sixth grade. I could grow a full beard. I, like, grew up physically really early, and I was big, and I was sick. And I remember literally eating at the Pizza Hut buffet. I remember in one sitting eating 25 pieces of pizza and 15 breadsticks. I was so proud. I'm like, mom, I just ate 25 pieces. What was my mom thinking? Like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad we're not at home right now. Like, and if you're thinking, wait, Pizza Hut's have buffets, they don't. And I'm probably the reason. You don't see them anymore. Like probably metabolism heavy kids like me ate them like out, you know? Anyway, so one of the things that's been a challenge for me as an adult sometimes is, you know what? If I just followed my desires, I don't think I could eat 25 pieces of pizza anymore. But I would eat a lot. <laughs> and if you look at that article in the back here, Worship Folder, you could see that in the college and seminary. I ate a lot. <laughs> and if I just let my craving for food lead, rule, it wouldn't really be, well, one, it wouldn't be good for me. But there is really a way where you can kind of let your desire rule over you. And dictate your life. And I don't think anyone would say, well, you know what, just eating everything in sight is you living free. No, that would be you living, that would be me living captive to my appetite. You can apply that with other things in life too, spiritual things. Just doing what you want all the time is not freedom. It's actually living with your desires ruling over you. And that's why we had, again, that background lesson from Genesis with Cain and Abel, like we did last week. I know, like, it's a repeat, really? Yeah, we repeated it because it's really important to recognize that sin is more than just a choice between A and B. Oh, I could do this, or I could do that. It really, there's a power there where it desires to have you. The enemy wants you and he wants your life. You need to master it. Yeah. And if the enemy gets hold of you, and we talked about this last week, Cain's life was changed dramatically as a result. When you let the enemy, when you let your desires dictate your life, it it, it changes you. When When I would eat and eat and eat a lot of quick trip food and chicken wings in college, it changed my life. Right? I had to buy bigger clothes. I had to do different things, right? When you follow your desires, it changes you. It wants control over you. Don't let it rule you. Now, we had a second lesson from Genesis because not letting our desires rule you is tricky. There's probably things that we can look and say, well, of course, you shouldn't, like, you know, if you're in the store and you want that, you know, new phone don't and you desire it, you don't just take it. Like, that's pretty easy to see, right? But what's more challenging about this issue with our desires is that often the enemy puts in front of us things that aren't bad. But it's really, the issue is not so much what he's put in front of us, but how he is urging us to get it. Look at the scene here. Genesis chapter 3. Eve is at the tree. And what does she see about the fruit? That it's good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for wisdom. What out of those things is bad? Nothing. God gave them all the the trees in the garden. Eat from them. Eating Good for food? That's a good thing. Even wisdom is a great thing. God loves to give people wisdom. Sometimes when we think about Adam and Eve in the garden, I think we can kind of forget that God made them sinless and good, but with potential for growth. Meaning that the world, still there's this way it's described as kind of needing to be taken hold of. Adam and Eve were still, they had in front of them to learn what it was to be a parent, to have children, to go into the world and be fruitful and multiply. You know, I've actually stopped, I'm not actually using the word perfect as much with the beginning of the creation anymore as I used to. Because the word perfect has in it the idea that it's reached the end or finality. And while, while creation is sinless and pure, In its original state, it was created with potential to go and grow. God's work was finished in creation, but his partnership with humanity had just began. So God's planning to give Adam and Eve wisdom. Wisdom is good. So what was the problem? They reached out and took it for themselves, rather than receiving it as a gift from God. There's a question I've been pondering lately for some various things going on in my life and in the world is, is if a good thing is done the wrong way, are you still doing a good thing? Let me ask it again. If a good thing is done the wrong way, are you still doing a good thing? Scripture's answer would be emphatically, no. And many of the issues in Scripture come as a result of people trying to do God's things their own way. So this is part of what's tricky about our desires. We can look at something, and the enemy may be saying to you, this is a good thing, and he may be totally right. It's a good thing God's way. This is a good thing as a gift from God, not by you taking it in your own way. Don't let your, like, you might be desiring something good, but don't just let your desire dictate. We need to let someone else dictate. Dictate. We don't need to follow or fall underneath this trap anymore. But before we talk about the transition, we should probably, probably really clarify this trap. In your worship folder, and if you're a note-taking person, this is the time to get your folder out. You've got a crown printed in your folder. I encourage you to, to, to write alongside of it. And If you need a pencil, there should be one in the chair in front of you, unless you're in the very back row or in the front row. On the side of the crown, write, My desire. My desire wants to rule over me. Below my desire, write the word self. Myself wants to do it. Myself wants to be in charge. And then, along with my desire and myself, sin and death want to direct your life. My desire, myself, my sin, death want to rule over me. But our lesson says, don't let it. Don't let it. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. It's interesting, the word offer, the idea here is actually it's like standing by. It's like reporting for duty. That when you allow your desires, yourself, your sin, to dictate your life, you're basically coming before and saying, all right, I am reporting for, well, our translation says wickedness. More literally, the the idea of righteousness or rightness, this word is anti-it. When you follow your desires, you are reporting for being part of what is wrong in the world rather than what is right. When you allow yourself to be dictated by those things, you are reporting for duty as part of the team of everything that's wrong about the world. Because following and doing what's right in our own eyes is what has broken the world. Don't offer your parts, the parts of your body, as instruments of anti-rightness. You don't have to. Because you get to be part of something better because a change has happened for you. And this is a change for good. rather. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. Remember, your story is caught up in Jesus' story. So when you see death and resurrection, see yourself, my story. I used to be someone who was part of what's wrong in this world. I used to be someone whose life was dictated by my desires and led to death, but not anymore. You have been brought from death to life, so now you get to report for duty as part of how God is setting things right with the world, not wrong. In Christ, you get to report for duty and be part of how his righteousness, his rightness is spreading throughout the world. Report for that. This Sunday at the church here, when we celebrate the ascension of Jesus, and we had that background lesson from John chapter 14, to talk a bit about the purpose of Jesus' ascension. It's not just to assure us that he's prepared a place for us. It does that, certainly. But also, when he ascends this position of authority, he then also sends the Holy Spirit who will celebrate coming at Pentecost next week, to fill us, to teach us his truth, and then to work in us to be part of his righteousness, his kingdom, his good news in the world. Jesus ascended to fill so that the Spirit could come and fill you, to change you, to be part of the good in the world. To be a part of setting things right. Just, just soak that in and take that in for a minute. That, that you have been changed for good. To do good. And you get to embrace that. Because sin shall not be your master. Because you are not under law but under grace. Last week we talked about how sin wants to have lordship over you. And remember, a lord is is, is someone who is in charge because something belongs to it. That's so why we have this picture of like a castle on you. You think of a lord who, who a territory belongs to them and so they get to be in charge. Sin is not, it, you don't belong to it anymore. It does not master over your life anymore. God has the final say. Life has the final say. Because you are not under law, but under grace. There's a really interesting transition that's happened here that Paul is talking about. A transition between being under law versus under grace. And it's one that I've been meditating on a lot, and I think I'm just scraping scraping the surface on what it means. And so I encourage you even beyond today to meditate. What is the difference between being under law and under grace? Here's what I've learned so far. When you think about law, and Romans talks about law in really two different ways. There's the law that is on people's hearts. How you don't have to know a thing about Jesus to have a sense that there's right and wrong in the world. And even though people will say, well, right and wrong is... is is, isn't, you know, it's, it's fluid and whatnot. When you hear how outraged people are when they see things that they would title injustice in the world, it apparently isn't true. Right? When you see somebody who is, you know, I, I use this, we have confirmation, I use this example with the confirmation students. If you're getting ready to get on the bus and a senior in high school punches a kindergartner you're not going to stand there and go, well, I guess that's right for him. Like, that's wrong. And you step in and do something about it. And the thing is, we know that. There's this sense. There's a right and a wrong. So there's this natural law that we have. But then you also have, with an Old Testament nation of Israel, where there's, there's God's given law, there's the Ten Commandments and so on. And when you have these laws, what, is, what does the law do for us? The law shows us, it gives us this insight that there's, there's a way we were designed to live, There's a right and there's a wrong, but we don't match up. Now, thankfully for the Old Testament, Israel, nation of Israel, the law was a gift in many ways because it also pointed them to all the the civil and ceremonial laws where God would provide sacrifices for them and show them that there was a way he would set them right with him. But all those laws and those rituals were pointing ahead to a day when he would set them right with them. Ultimately, it it didn't complete it it kind of pointed them to the need. And so with the law, either way, whether you're part of Israel or whether you don't know about those Old Testament laws, there's this, this, this thing about the law that shows us that we need something to fix things, but we can't do it ourselves. It's gonna to have to come from somewhere else. So under law shows us there's a way we're meant to be, but we can't get there. That's in contrast to grace. To help us dig into grace, we're going to watch the the Bible Projects video about the word gracious, which at the center has this concept of grace. you
1: tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We are going to look at the second key word in this statement, gracious. The Hebrew word is chenun, which is related to the Hebrew noun chen. This word chen is often translated as grace or favor. And if you study how this word is used throughout the Bible, you find a fascinating story. One meaning of chen is delightful or favorable. In the Psalms, a skilled poet is said to have lips of chen. That is, he can craft beautiful words that bring delight. Or a dazzling piece of jewelry is an ornament of chen. It attracts attention and favor. This is why chen is often the word used to describe a gift given with delight or favor. In these cases, chen could be translated as grace. Like in the story of Esther, who approaches the king of Persia to ask that she and her people be spared from death. She calls this a request for chen. And because the king delights in Esther, he favors her and grants her wish. So, giving a gift of favor is chen because it is motivated by delight. And the most extreme kind of chen is showing favor to someone who should get what they deserve. Not a generous gift, like Jacob who cheated his brother Esau, ran away, and then after 20 years wants to come back and make things right. So he comes to Esau asking, may I find chen in your eyes? Jacob isn't asking for what is fair, but for favor. And surprisingly, that's what Esau gives him. He chooses to delight in his brother Jacob and show him grace that he doesn't deserve. Now, chen requires a generous spirit, which people sometimes have. But in the Bible, the one who shows more chen than anyone else is God. Like when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they quickly betray him by giving their allegiance to a golden idol as their God. But then, Moses steps in and asks God to consider giving a gift that they do not deserve. And God says, yes, by showing the ultimate act of chen, forgiveness and a promise to be with these people. This character trait of God is so reliable that over 40 times in the book of Psalms, people cry out for God's chen when they are sick or in danger or when the Israelites are in exile. And The biblical prophets like Isaiah looked back to God's chen in the past and boldly declared that God will one day show chen to his people by delivering them and all creation from death and ruin. Now, when we turn to the authors of the New Testament, They describe God's chen with the Greek word charis, which means gracious gift. Like when we are introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we are told that Jesus is God's glorious charis become human, sent into a world of people trapped in darkness and death. Because according to the apostle Paul, we are like the living dead. God has handed humanity over to the destructive consequences of our selfish decisions. But, Paul says, God is rich in mercy, and by his charis, he's rescued us. He's talking about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are offered to us as a generous gift of life that is more powerful than death. And, as with any gift, all one has to do is receive it. So, now you can see why the biblical authors talk so much about this description of God's character throughout the Bible. When people are willing to own their failures and ask God for chen, he has a consistent and generous response. God gives the gift of himself, his life and his love. and This is what it means that God is gracious.
0: What it does is it sets us up for grace. We can't do it. What do we need? A gift. We need a gift from God. Grace is all about the fact that there's there's nothing, like any gift, there's not a thing you need to do to make it happen. It's not a thing you need to do to earn it. I know you're excited about this, right? This is a gift to be excited about. It's not a toy, though. It's new life. It's a gift from God. The fact that it comes from God and grace being from God is the polar opposite of living by your desires. Because being directed by your desires are saying, this is what I want. I need to get it. Grace is, I can't get what I want or what I need. God needs to give it. It's the exact opposite. It's the solution. It's the new life. The law shows how do I get there? I don't know. But then when doing so, it sets it up. Because the law shows us that I can't get there, it also then shows us that I need someone else. I need God to get there for me. I need the gift. And when you're under grace, when you're under the fact that God delights in you and gives you the free gift of His grace, it changes everything. When you're under grace, you're under the fact that you have a new story, a story that goes from death to resurrection. You're under the fact that you have been changed now. When you're under grace, you have been changed for good. So embrace that change. I encourage you, again, if you're taking notes, get your folder out one more time. And cross off the my desire, self, death, that stuff. Because that does not rule you. And instead, right over the top, write the word grace. Write God. (laughs) Write God's gift. Because that's really what grace is. And then write life. God, his grace, his gift, his life. They direct you. Now, if Paul talks about offering your body to righteousness, to, to, to report for duty, to be part of setting things right, what about grace, God's grace over you, will make your body be before God part of what's setting things right? What about God's grace? Here are a few things. God's grace means that God is your life. God is my life. I don't have to strive to try to get light myself. I couldn't. He created me. I'm not the source. God is my life. God is my source. My source for everything. One of the beautiful things about grace is that God, that it's not, about, it's not about denying us what we need. It's actually just about giving us what we need the way we need it. God is my, I need life. God is my life. God is my, I need, I need, I need these different things. God is my source. Grace means that God is my provider. That if I need something, He gives it. If I need something, He provides it. This changes us because then it's not about, oh I think I need that or I think I want that. I gotta figure out how to get it. I look, okay God, how, are you gonna, how, how do you want to give this? How do you want to grant it? What, what direction are you calling me to go and I will trust you to provide? God's grace changes us because now God is my guide. Instead of me trying to figure out what I need to do for the future, or how to fix things, I look to him and I trust him to give me the gift of guidance and direction. Grace changes me. It transforms me because now God is my strength. It's so amazing when you feel weak to know that I can keep going because the strength that is going to be needed to accomplish the task does not come from me. That changes you when the source for your strength is not you but an endless supply. Grace tra- changes you because grace gives you hope. When we hope in and of ourselves, we're like, I hope this happens. Biblical hope is expectation. You get to live knowing that God has made promises and they will come through. You get to, grace changes you because you get to live knowing that God is, is your all. Whatever it is that, that you need. God provides. If you read through the, the scriptures, and you see this a lot in the Psalms, actually, it's interesting how often scripture will talk about, about God giving, like Psalm 37, God will give you the desires of your, your heart. Or even Psalm, I believe it was 21, talks about giving the king the desires of his heart. What grace teaches you is not that God, that the Christian life is now just, just Now I get. I have to live this self of denial, and it's really life of denial, and it's really negative in this way. The Christian life is about receiving what you need, and what is most life giving, as a gift from God. And so it transforms you because then you're not just trying to live life for what you think you want or you think you need. You're not trying to live life in your own strength. You're not trying to grab it yourself. You're not trying to do any of these things. The Christian life is transformed because the Christian life is a life received from God, the one who is the author of life, the one who created you for life, the one who gives you eternal life, and the one who transforms your life today. At our late service, we're going to have that confirmation. And I'm so and I love that it worked out that we had this this lesson today because I get to encourage those young people that as they go through their life and and as they they face the challenges that will come along to their faith, that the strength that they need, the faith that they need, the wisdom that they need is not going to be, I'm not going to say, hey, all right, now go be strong and commit yourself to the Lord. I get to encourage them that the Lord is committed to you and you can trust him to give you what you need, just like you can to. When you trust him to give you this life, it changes you, he equips you for good. In your life and in this world, you've experienced a change for good.